Hey, before we jump in, Hashrate Up is not just a podcast. I want to be your partner in the ever-evolving world of the Bitcoin mining industry. Through extensive connections and by constantly updating research, I can help you find hosting solutions that match your needs and budget, while also providing competitive pricing on the latest ASIC miners. So if you are ready to take your Bitcoin mining operation to the next level, let's work together to find quality hosting and ASICs at prices that won't break the bank. The best part about this? My input comes free of charge. Whether you're a seasoned miner or just dipping your toes into the world of Bitcoin mining, I'm here to help you make the first or next steps. There are great peace of mind hosting opportunities. Whether you're an individual with a couple of ASICs or an institution with 500 to 2000 units, or you want to go even larger than that, let me help you find competitive offers from well-positioned participants in the mining industry around the world. You can find my contact information below in the show notes. Let's get your hash rate up. With that being said, let's jump in. All right, announcements galore. One more before we get started. Adopting Bitcoin Conference happens in Cape Town from the 26th to the 28th of January this year. So it's like three weeks away. If you are keen to do an impromptu journey to Africa, consider coming to Cape Town. It's a beautiful city, beautiful setting right next to the Table Mountain, two oceans. Can't really find anything better than that. Adopting Bitcoin will have speakers from Gen3, Bitcoin Ikazi, Bitrust Builders, Anita Posh, Paco from Run With Bitcoin, good friend of ours, is coming. Gridless will be there, many more. I will be speaking as well. So if you are keen for another conference, come down to Cape Town and come join us for some good content, some good vibes and a good old-fashioned South African braai. Hello and welcome everybody. Welcome back to Hashrate Up um, or welcome if you're here for the first time. Um, we are not sure yet, but this may or may not be the first episode that's uploaded on YouTube. So if you come from the show previously, welcome back. If you're a new listener, welcome. Uh, I hope you enjoy the content. Um, today I have uh, a great guest with me. Very interesting. I'm very excited for this conversation. Um, we have Mehdi Nazari from Lincoln with us. Hey, Mehdi, how are you? Hi, Jesse. Hello, everybody. We are well, uh, we're recording at 824.364. Our 30-day hash rate is at 513, and the hash price is at 86.22. It's come down a little bit from the, from the high highs of, of a full mempool uh, and settling in, but steadily climbing over time. Today, um, Midi and I will speak about his company a little bit, Lintcoin, uh, the platform that they have built, um, and pools and energy trading and all kinds of interesting stuff. Um, Midi, where are you right now? What, what time is it for you? Uh, I'm based in Vancouver. It is 10.53 in the morning. Right. So, so good morning to you. For me, it's uh, 10 to 9 in Cape Town. I'm sweating. It's 30 degrees out. The room is boiling. But hey, we're here anyway. Um, so b before we get into into anything in detail, maybe tell us maybe a little bit about yourself um, and your Bitcoin story if you want to share, uh, and then we can hop into Lincoin and, and go about the, the basics and, and the history of the company there first. Sure. Uh, my name is Mehdi Nasseri. I am the CEO and co-founder of Lincoin Technologies, a Vancouver-based Vancouver uh, Bitcoin mining a software and energy intelligence uh, company. Uh, I started Lincoin in 2021 with a partner of mine, Mustafa. But uh, before that, I was 
I was a graduate student um, doing my PhD. I graduated from from school in 20, 2019, and then COVID happened, and in the middle of COVID, we decided to start this company. So that's a pretty long story. But before that, uh, let me tell you about my my Bitcoin story. So I first heard about Bitcoin in 2013. And I was like one of the guys who checked the Bitcoin price every morning. I was watching the price going, going from $100 to $1,000 and then dropped. Um, that, was, that was pretty awesome days. But I did not buy any Bitcoin. I wanted to. I searched for it. There was no way to do it, like locally here in Vancouver. And I had a friend who told me, hey, don't put any money on this thing. It's going to collapse. And I took his advice, actually. So, uh, two and a half years later, it was um, 20, 2015, 2016-ish, um, I thought, okay, now it might be the time to start buying Bitcoin. And the price was around like 200, 300 bucks. Uh, I found, I mean, the, the industry was a lot more developed. There were websites, there were like ATMs where you could buy Bitcoin. So, I started like spending 20 bucks a day, things like that. And then at the same time, as I like learned more about cryptocurrencies and blockchain and all those things, I started looking for mining devices. So buying ASICs was not easy at the time. You probably had to buy them directly from manufacturers, things like that. But GPUs were pretty accessible. So I started buying bunch of GPUs from Best Buy and they were like in low demand because nobody knew what what mining is, right? But it was probably like um, Ethereum was still like less than a year old, I guess, the time that I started doing the GPU. I bought a bunch of GPUs. I had a desk uh, at school. So we were like a graduate student. So I was doing my PhD at the time. So I had a, like a small private office. And I started assembling all those GPUs and mining and hitting the office with the GPUs, kind of. I mean, that was not intentional. The office got got like warmed up by the by the GPUs. That was not intentional. Uh, and it was summertime, I believe. So um, I got into mining um, through that, and I kept mining for over a year. Uh, the market collapsed after 2017. It was not really worth it to mine anymore. So I stopped doing that, but I was like checking the price. I was like active in the market for a while. And then um, in 2021, or let's say 2020, I started thinking about ideas. What should we be doing? What type of a company can we build in this space? And eventually in uh, 2021, Lincoln happened. Uh, so I'll stop here. Do you want me to start the, the story of Lincoin too, but, or, or not? I mean. Yeah, I mean, it all, it all ties in together, right? So so the idea is, hey, you, you just sit down and think about it, and then Lincoln happens. Where did the, where did the uh, influence come from, I guess, to say, okay, we need a pool, yeah. um, and really what you built is a platform, right, with with different services that we'll speak about in, in a yeah. little bit, yeah. So it was it was right after the, the mining ban in China. Like, um, the mining industry was immigrating from Asia to North America, and uh, we thought this could be a good opportunity to start building a platform and a solution for that industry. I mean, we were probably a bit late in the game. There were like uh, some other companies before us. 
but we launched our product in September 2021. It's almost two years and like uh, four months ago that we launched our product. The very first version went live on September 7th. And just imagine a very, very bad buggy product, first version. But we were successful in onboarding some, some small miners to the platform. <clears throat> so uh, we started from there. We grew to somewhere around uh, maybe around uh, 80, 90 petahash by the end of 2021. And from there, we started to grow. Right now, we manage um, a bit over one exahash and uh, growing at a, at a pretty good rate. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> I mean, question here, because it came actually up today in a different conversation that I had with you. How do you start? Like, if you had to start over again now um, and you, you were starting a pool, how do you get to your first petahash? How do you get to your first 100 terahash? You know, how do you get the first miner to send you hashes? If, if the chances to find a block are so slim, right? If you just going into uh, uh, Ocean and, and Demand, um, Ocean had a big marketing festival on Twitter, basically, right? They've got big names. I think Jack Dorsey dropped 6.2 million on them. Um, lots of controversy. All good news is good. Uh, all news is good news, basically. And, and it just gets the name out there and people are talking about it, right? Demand says, hey, we're the first Stratum V2 a pool to come out and, and all kinds of other things. So so if you had to choose, if you were starting a pool now, if somebody was listening and said, hey, I want to build a pool, okay. So how what, what do you do? Like, how do you get to the first petahash on your pool? What's the strategy to go to market? Uh, well, I think organic growth is definitely the right way to go. That's that's my personal thought. I think we did uh, we did it the right way. I mean, we didn't have any experience, but we are happy with our path pathway from the beginning up to here. And probably a company who wants to be successful from day one should do non-scalable things to a scale. Especially at the beginning, you have to be talking to people one-on-one. -on -one. Just tell them about the mission, tell them about the vision, tell them about the product, uh, and if they like you and they trust you, there are, I mean, there are a lot of early adopters and innovators in, in the mining space who would take the risk and join you. And that's what happened to us. We were, we were pretty, pretty successful in onboarding those users early on. Uh, and for sure, I mean, they provide you feedback and uh, make your product better and better every day. So, so what is the what is the the vision and the and the the idea that you that you sold um, miners or that you approached miners with when you met them one to one? What did you tell them about Lincoln that was different? So, the way that we started the company was uh, like the very first three months. We were a lot focused on transparency and auditability, as well as monitoring tools. So, this has been. Uh, it, has, it has been like said multiple times by us that if you're mining on Lincoln, we help you audit your earnings with 0.0% error without trusting us. So that has been kind of our selling point since day one. Explain, explain that to me. Sorry, Mili. Explain what does that mean? You, 
I don't understand Technically, that. when you are working with a mining pool, you are selling them your hash rate. And you are receiving Bitcoin in exchange for that hash rate. Usually what happens to uh, Bitcoin miners is that they just provide the hash rate, receive a payment, say, this is what it is. That's fine. That's group number one. There is a second group. They provide the hash rate, receive the payment, compare that with the hash price, and say, okay, this is more or less okay. But there is another level that we are trying to be the provider of that level, is that you and the mining pool should agree on a formula and a setting so you both can agree on a number with 0% error. So that's what we are doing in the market. All right. So, and does that, does the formula you are using, uh, I assume that's, that's public or that's communicated, um, it, it, does it differ from the typical FPPS um, formula that, for instance, Luxor uses to calculate the, the hash price that they publish? Yeah. So in terms of FPPS, um, we think that there are two different ways to do FPPS. One is um, measuring hash price on a rolling basis and paying users based on that rolling averaging method. Or there is another way that we call it auditable FPPS that we settle the payments and zero the error at midnight UTC time. So we average everything between midnight to midnight and settle the numbers at that moment. So when you audit that and compare that with the actual data from the Bitcoin blockchain, based on the time stamp of the blocks, you can come up with the exact number from the pool. So that's that's how we, we do the calculations and measure the rewards. I guess the main conversation then is about what period you use to roll the roll the blocks over, right? Do you use a day? Do you use 10 blocks? Do you use a week? Um, and then there are drawbacks <clears throat> or whatever. It just has to be agreed to. Um, okay, interesting. Um, yeah, that, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, to, talking about pools a little bit more, I had a few technical questions. I told you this before yep. we started recording. Um, how, how Like as a pool operator, how much bandwidth do you need to plan for um, when you when you onboard mining machines or miners from the network? So um, the rule of thumb to be on the safe side, we tell people consider somewhere between 800 megabyte to one gigabyte per miner per month for communication bandwidth. The number could be more or less depending on the difficulty that the mining pool sets on devices. And uh, the difficulty means or let's say this is called like, this is not the actual network difficulty. This is the pool difficulty. This means how often the pool requires a response from you. So if they set the difficulty lower, the miner is going to submit answer to the pool more often. If the difficulty is higher, that's going to happen less often, which means less bandwidth is required. So depending on how the pool sets your, sets the difficulty on your device, it means it can it can mean like how much bandwidth do you need per device? All right, and then the 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 drawback or the the what you're weighing up, maybe right, is how accurately can you report on the hash rate that the miner produces? Mm -hmm. How many shares are they sending versus 
how much bandwidth is needed, right? So um, how much more bandwidth would be needed? Let's say, I don't know, let's take an arbitrary number. If you have the actual uh, um, Bitcoin uh, difficulty right now and you have that, like how much bandwidth would be needed to, to, to send um, all the blocks that match half the difficulty that we have right now? Is that, can you answer that? Oh, that's, that's a lot smaller actually. So the actual difficulty that we set on, on machines is much smaller than the actual network difficulty because the reason is because as a mining pool, we want to make sure that everybody are contributing all the time and they're not missing out or they're not resting in between. So you got to work and you got to prove it. How can you prove it? We set a low difficulty for you whenever you found an answer Based on that low difficulty, send that our way so we can account for it. And we can have an evidence that you have been trying as part of the pool. So that's, that's what's called a share, right? That's what you call a share. And so how low, how much below, how much below the actual difficulty do you set this target? For example, the difficulty of the network is it like 72 Tera right now, I believe, or something, something I wouldn't like that. I would have to look it up now. Yeah. So like, but I mean, just just give me give me a rough number. Like, is it is it fifty percent lower than the actual difficulty? Is it seventy percent lower? Twenty percent lower? No, it's a lot lower. So let's say the difficulty right now is seventy two tera. The difficulty that is being set on devices is somewhere between like ten thousand to let's say five hundred thousand. Compare that with tera. I mean. All right, and you still for all that communication because then obviously the miners will will find blocks that, that go beyond that low, low difficulty target quite often. Even with all that communication on the network, you still only need up to a gigabyte per month. Um, okay, interesting. Because it's always, you know, especially, uh, I, I'm, I mean, listeners of the show know this, I'm, I'm based in Cape Town, so I really want to promote the, the idea of hash rate coming to Africa more. That's what I, I do with, with the pod and, and with my daily business. Um, but this is always what I tell you, like you can mine with a 2G internet connection in the middle of nowhere, right? And turn electricity into something of value for the first time in human history without any infrastructure needed. Um, but I never understood up until this point how much bandwidth was actually needed right? and if that is even a true statement or not, because I don't know how easy it is to send a gigabyte via 2G. I mean, uh, <coughs> sorry. The speed of internet could be pretty low. The latency can be pretty bad. Probably like with a latency of, I don't know, 300 milliseconds, you can still successfully participate in a mining pool. Um, but in terms of um, how much bandwidth and how much like speed do you need, I think, well, there are, there are many ways that you can fix that. I mean, if you don't have high quality internet. One way is to actually set, set the difficulty manually on the pool. So we have that option if anybody wants that. Also, there are ways to aggregate your hash rate. Let's say you have 100 machines. You can use hash rate aggregators or proxies to participate in a pool uh, and uh, just, just do it as one single device. So there would be the hash rate aggregator that acts as a single, single ASIC device in terms of connecting to the pool. It receives the share or the work or the job from the pool, and it locally distributes that among smaller like the devices. 
So technically, that's a way to lower your bandwidth and traffic usage when you have low quality internet. I guess. I guess then you just pay a higher fee, right? Now because now you're paying the pool a fee, and then you're paying Actually, the aggregator fee. There are fee, free aggregators well. out there that you can use, but this is what you would lose. This is the downside. You will lose some uh, some like very important monitoring data by doing so. So when you log into your pool dashboard, all you're gonna see is just one single device with ten petahash of hash rate. Instead of seeing like a thousand devices with like hundred terahash each. Yeah. So if you don't have access to your farm, monitoring it from a distance becomes also difficult, right? So, so who does this? Like who has worse enough internet in the world that they do this? Or is there another benefit that I'm missing? So we see that happen less often these days, but let's say a couple of years ago, specifically the guys who mined off grid in very remote areas used to use aggregators more often. Uh, but now people, because they want that uh, monitoring data, they prefer to have high quality internet and do it. And people are just using like Starlink to do that, like in remote areas, which is, which has been pretty okay as far as we see on the pool. So I guess that's less of an issue these days. Yeah, I was going to say Starlink probably. Um... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> made made the aggregators wave goodbye more and more in recent recent months. Okay, so just a, uh, staying on the technical um, side of things for for pools for a minute, Midi. Um, what we talked about architecture before on pools. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Like how how do you structure a pool? How is it built? And, and what does the pool actually do when it comes to communication with the miners? What work is done on your end? Yeah, so um, first of all, something that should be clarified here, when we are talking about pools, there are multiple different types of pools out there. Some pools are actual primary pools. Some pools are aggregators of hash rate contributing to bigger primary pools. What is a primary pool? These are This is the definition of a primary pool, an entity that creates a block template, distribute that among miners, controls the Coinbase transaction of that block template, and controls the label of the block. So this is the, the three qualities that a primary pool should have. And with those qualities, there are maybe only five or six actual primary mining pools out there who provide the node and distribute the work, create the block and all those things. And then there is another layer that I call them aggregators. Industry might come up with some other name later on, but those are becoming a lot more common these days. These entities, and Lincoln is one of them, we provide services to our users, collect the hash rate, and then share that hash rate with a bigger pool. And that pool is the block creating entity. So that, that has been a pretty, pretty hot topic, especially in the past one month. And probably when you see 20 mining pools on Bitcoin, I'm telling you there, there are maybe only five or six real primary pools. Everybody else are just selling their hash to the bigger pool. So why are you not operating your own node and doing it yourself? Why? 
So there are reasons behind that. The industry wants FPPS. That's kind of a proven reality, not because of the auditability of it, but also because of the consistency in the payments. But as a small operator, you probably can't uh, manage the risk of not mining a block. So people who are not big enough kind of aggregate those hash rates, share it with a bigger pool so they mine block more often so they can manage the risk. There's also another risk that is becoming bigger and bigger every day for pool operators is the risk of compliance. So uh, pool operators want to avoid block creation because that's a big responsibility. What transactions do you include in your template and how do you manage that? That's the point, that could be a point of failure in terms of compliance. So pools want to avoid that as well. So, so who are the five, six big ones that, that are actually doing it? What I thought all the, all the smaller mining pools on mempool are already doing. So Foundry is one, Antpool is one, F2Pool is one, VRBTC is one, uh, SBI is one, um, and I think there is no other one. And I mean, then Ocean if, is one. Yeah, yeah I was so going to ask about one. those. Yeah, uh, demand as well. Uh, demand as well. There are solo pools, so um, they are also technically a primary pool when you mine to them. That's actually really interesting. I didn't know that. I thought all of these guys were all operating their own node and and doing doing the doing the the thing that pools do. Um, so if I if I mine with one of the like if I mine with Lincoin, right? Um, what's the fee on your pool? So we we charge somewhere under two point five percent, depending on the scale of the user. Okay, so that means that means do you just like pass that cost through, or I mean, you don't have to give any give away any details that you can't, right? But I'm just wondering in my head, like if I now go through you or any of the other ones that you haven't listed, do I pay your margin as a miner? Because my thing is always how much room is there with the hash price going lower and lower and lower? How much room is there in any in any side of the business to pay somebody else's margin? Right. So if I go to Foundry over again, one of the ones that you haven't mentioned, um, do I pay a lower fee as a result because I don't have to fee? Probably anybody? not. And first of all, I, I got to confirm running a mining pool is a race to zero. So that's a very competitive business. And you have to kind of differentiate if you want to win the game. But in terms of the fees and pricing, the aggregator pools can actually offer pretty pretty decent and competitive fees. Even like things that you probably can't get if you directly deal with any of those other pools. But at the same time, they usually offer some added value that could help you a lot. And in terms of architecture, let me make a clarification here. Um, so these second layer pools, they usually have independent share processing units, which means they measure your contribution to the pool, they account for your uh, reward, they pay your reward in some cases, um, and then just as a risk management practice, 
they just kind of sell that hash rate to that bigger player in order to manage the risk. So it is not that these these are only like actual proxies and they're not doing anything. No, they are actually doing a lot of things. They're they're almost doing everything that a pool does except for the running the node and creating the block template. Okay. So on the end, they're basically reducing the, the risk of running into a string of bad luck, mm-hmm. buying a bunch of hash rate from people, paying them, and not actually getting any revenue from it, right? Which is what the miner is trying to avoid uh, by playing the zero-sum game that we all love in the first place. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when, when you have buy and host providers and they they take up a whole container f- for a megawatt or whatever, and then they sell it out in like 20, 50, 80 um, unit slots, um, aggregate all of that demand and get a better price as a result than you could as a as a sole sole miner going directly to the to the underlying hoster, I would say, right? Yep. And unfortunately, Bitcoin mining is no exception when you when you think about industries, similar industries, let's say in steel industry, in farming, in tomatoes, in banking, everywhere there is centralization. And everywhere there are a few big entities who manage the market. And those are, those are I mean, it's, it's not easy to take them down or become one of them because it takes a lot of time, a lot of investment and all those things. So unfortunately, Bitcoin mining pool business is also something similar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's economies of scale at the end of the day, right? Um, yeah. Okay, so, all right. One last question around the in the pool side because I want to move on to to a different topic. Um, uh, how do you see the decentralization around pools? What do you see um, with the news around ocean and demand? What do you stratum v two? Is it something that you would you guys would offer on your pool? Why would you and why not? Give me some some feedback on that. So first of all, the state of decentralization of mining pools is pretty bad. Yes, nobody is saying that. Maybe maybe nobody is saying that, but it is pretty bad and it is becoming worse. Uh, a solution to that might be out there, um, but I think a Stratum V2 is not that solution. Just to clarify, we were the second mining pool in the world who offered a Stratum V2. It was over a year ago that we started offering a Stratum V2 endpoint. Uh, experimented with, with it a bit, like people started using that, uh, but we stopped maintaining that endpoint. Uh, first of all, because that was um, a lot of like technical requirements to maintain that node and endpoint. At the same time, we thought Stratum V2 is not necessarily a need, and there is not necessarily enough demand out there for it. So. In Astralum V2, this is what is being advertised. There are some really good features, encryption, lower bandwidth requirements. And there is also this feature that they call, we give miners the ability to create their own blocks or propose their own blocks. But at the end of the day, the mining pool will have the option to accept or reject that block. And the mining pool... If, if that block is not, let's say, does not fulfill the AML, anti-money laundry like requirements of the pool, they're going to reject that, number one. Number two, if that block template is not fat enough, 
I mean, like, there is not enough fees included in it. Again, uh, the pool might not accept that. Or they might accept that, but eventually that person is kind of lowering the average payout to everybody on that pool or increase the risk for the pool later on. So I think there is there is some some bottlenecks here and some some issues that need to be addressed. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, predictability of Bitcoin blocks rather than customizability of Bitcoin blocks. Blocks. So I think if we know that there is a network out there called Bitcoin, and in this network, if you pay a high enough fee your transaction is going to go through, that's what is going to be 100% awesome. And that's that's good enough. There would be no risk of like compliance. There would be no risk of, or no responsibility for the pools to include or exclude a transaction in a blog or whatever. But when you talk about customization, that means that people have the option to include or exclude. And that means a lot of risks. And that means... Uh, a lot of centralization, and that could mean uh, a lot of censorship. At the end of the day, though, maybe would you agree that it's uh, again the market that decides, right? I mean, the the ocean pool has grown to six hundred petahashes now, right? Um, you know, people are talking about it a bunch. I'll probably have to have one of the guys on to talk about it more in detail, what the controversy is really. Um, but at the end of the day, that's what decides, right? Every miner with the hash rate decides if they say, hey, in Stratum V2 and who wants to learn more, everybody who wants to learn more about Stratum V2 can listen back to the episode I've done with, with uh, Alejandro from Demand. Um, but uh, there's a bunch of protection um, around man in the middle attacks as well, which is an added benefit with Stratum V2. So, and that there's maybe other benefits that will sway the market to, <clears throat> to, to compete or maybe force other pools to say, hey, like we need to offer this endpoint that you stopped servicing again um, in order to stay competitive and, and keep the hash rate that's pointed at us currently. I agree. I 100% agree. I think the option should be out there and the market should choose the winner. And there is no one winner. There could be multiple winners, right? So people might keep using a Stratum V1. People, some people might start using a Stratum V2. Someone might introduce a Stratum V3. Who knows, right? And that's the beauty about Bitcoin. That's what keeps it dynamic and what what keeps it like growing in the future. Yeah. So just talking about dust attacks briefly, how do you protect against against that uh, right now? Talk. I mean, I talked about man in the middle attacks, dust attacks, whatever. It's on the same sort of space of questions. How do you protect against that as a pool? So. Um, as you speak, there are two solutions out there that almost any mining pool is using that to protect themselves against DDoS attacks. One is Amazon, Amazon AWS, that many pools are actually using that um, these days. They have a DOS attack protection on, uh, on like TCP level, which is required for, for Bitcoin mining. And there is a product by uh, Cloudflare, they call it the Spectrum for DOS attack protection. That's what is kind of the industry standard right now. Does that impact centralization, decentralization somehow? It does, it does. 
And when you hear that most of the pools are actually using one of the two options, that makes makes you think about, hey, is Bitcoin mining actually as decentralized as we think? Um, and that's what, what we are trying to change. We're trying not to stick to one service provider and diversify our kind of data center providers and solution providers. Um, that might not necessarily be beneficial today, but at some point it could be. I feel like I mean, you're gonna be on here uh, much sooner than you again than you than you thought or and I thought because we're running out of time. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's go back to Lincoln for a little bit. Um, Lincoln is more than just a pool, right? It's it's more of a platform. Anybody that looks at the website sees that quite uh, quite immediately. You guys do um, operation management for miners. You have a dashboard. And then you offer energy trading desk as well. And earlier you said um, something that I very much agree with. Any any fee-based business model in the Bitcoin mining industry is a race towards the bottom at some point, or, or might, there might already be a pool that offers zero fees and, and tries to get value out of the hash rate that's pointed towards them um, um, elsewhere, right? And, and in your case, I think it's, it's energy trading mechanisms or, or strategies that you guys offer in in your platform and then the the operational side of things that reminded me of form in a bunch um as well right so um let's talk about the energy trading side of things first um why did you guys decide to offer this um yeah give me give me give a bit more color there so let me tell you a bit of a story about Lincoln. so we launched a product on september 7 2021 i told you about that we have spent one year on building the mining pool it was like we, we released more than 55 updates in the first year of running the pool, which means we built so many features. If you go to our dashboard, you'll see this is technically the most feature, featureful and most advanced Bitcoin mining pool available in the market right now. But after one year, we had probably like a, a few hundred hash rate on our pool. We thought, hey, we have built a great product but this is not 10x better than any other product out there. And we, we might be, let's say, 20% better in terms of like the value that we create for our users. And we believe there should be other elements included to this ecosystem to make it more valuable. And that was the moment that we started building on two other verticals. One was operations management, the other one was energy intelligence. Um, it took us about um, eight months to release our the first version of our ASIC management platform, which enables like remote management of, of devices and miners, and about a year to build our energy intelligence platform and, and release that uh, for public. So that's that's kind of the story that, that we had. Um, and that that covers up until this past summer, maybe like four months ago. Okay, interesting. Um, what what in-house capabilities made you made you think, okay, we're going to offer energy st trading strategies here as well? Like because uh, then you you're hitting right the intersection of what this podcast is also about, right? A bit combining in energy. What's required on your team to to have enough um, expertise? Do you have energy traders on your team? Uh, we became energy traders. 
<laughs> we we didn't hire one or we don't have one, but technically we had to learn just like anybody else in Bitcoin mining space. But here is the uh, the method of thinking that we had. Uh, when we started to kind of um, have a deeper look into the operations of Bitcoin miners, what we learned was that Bitcoin miners are not actually uh, data center operators. These are energy brokers. They buy energy from the grid or from off-grid energy sources, convert that to compute or hash rate, and sell that to the network. That's how we saw the operations, and that's the reality about Bitcoin mining. In order to connect the two dots between energy market and the compute market, which is the Bitcoin, Bitcoin network, we had to build a third dot, which is the operations management platform, or as we call it, this is an IoT platform, Internet of Things platform, where you can collect data from any of these two markets, from the compute market and from the energy market, and take action on the operations based on the inputs that you have. So you technically, you should be able to automate the entire process based on the metrics that you collect and based on the measurements that you have from the energy side and from the compute side. And for that purpose to come to reality, for that, uh, that vision to come to reality, we actually invented something that we call a no-code programming language, and it is called Rails on our platform, where people can actually program their operation and automate the process of trading energy and trading compute. So through Rails, you can make measurements from any of these metrics, energy price, energy mix, hash price, temperature of devices, so many, so many different metrics you can measure, and you can actually trigger an action based on those measurements. You can do it without having any programming knowledge, just by a few clicks, and you can do that in multiple different layers. So you can, let's say you can create 10 different layers of programming with different priority on your operation, depending on how sophisticated you want to actually manage manage your energy strategy or mining strategy. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it sounds, uh, it sounds like you can go on your platform, you have your inputs, and then you can have a bunch of if-then statements uh, that say, if this happens, do this, right? Uh, that's actually really interesting. So, I mean, on the, on the mining side of things, I, I, I assume it's every bit of data that a farm collects, temperature, humidity, um, time of the mine, like where it is at, temperature of the miners, um, power draw, and all of that good stuff, which you, which you can see, uh, or what the miner actually delivers and the farm and the sensors deliver. So what, what are sort of the, the main inputs from the energy side of things that people are typically surprised by? When they see it, you know, everybody, you know, it's going to be weather, there's going to be price, but what are the, the, the inputs that people are usually, huh, like I, I didn't expect this to be here. What are those inputs? So we had a very accidental innovation when we were building the energy intelligence platform. After we built the platform, we learned that this is the most advanced energy strategy ever built in any industry. So people, when they see the mining pool, they say, okay, this is just like any other pool, slightly better. 
when they see the ASIC management, they say, okay, this is like any other ASIC management platform out there. It's slightly better with some cool features. But as soon as they see our energy trading platform, they say, this is it. This is something that I have never seen anywhere else. And this is actually going to make a lot of uh, uh, changes in the industry and how people consume energy, how people source energy and all those things. So that's kind of our, our unique offering in the market right now. So where do you sell, where, where's the energy trading part available? I assume it's the US, but yeah, do you have anything outside of the US? We serve nine deregulated electricity markets in North America. Uh, there are two in Canada, seven in the US. Um, the Europe, uh, for Europe, we have done some experiments for integrations. There are some regulatory like requirements for integration to the, the EU grid, specifically for tracking devices. For, for demand response, that's slightly easier. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way that you're doing it. In our roadmap, we see that being offered for Australia and New Zealand as well. What do you mean by tracking devices? Um, because you, you offering demand response integration with Nordpool would probably blow the roof of the platform. Um, so there are, in a good way. Yeah. So there are, <laughs> there are three, three elements when we talk about energy strategy. Number one is price responsiveness. Number two is demand responsiveness. Number three is actual, actually demand response, as they call it, like ancillary services being offered by the grid. For example, let's talk about ERCOT. So in ERCOT, people are exposed to real-time prices depending on which part of the state that they are. There are like six, seven different zones that you get exposed to the prices. Most of the miners are in West Zone. Uh, that pricing changes every five minutes. And eventually you're going to get billed based on 15 minute time segments. Uh, but also there is another um, topic here. They call it coincidental peaks or 4CP as they call it in ERCOT. It is called differently in different regions in North America that you have to know when the coincidental peak of the grid happens in each month and have plans for it. So in the summertime, you got to make sure that you are not consuming power during those coincidental peaks of the grid. If you do, you're going to get penalized somewhere around $40,000 per megawatt per year. And that's huge. And in other months, you also have to have the right strategy for coincidental peaks. So our platform automates that process for miners or for any type of the load. That's already a big headache removed from the miner, right? Um, okay, interesting. But at the end of the day, you, you know, I, I think I saw it on a presentation of Foreman before where they, where they showed what the electricity price can go to. I said, basically, if you consume power at these prices and don't turn off, um, you're bankrupt. So that's, that was number one. Right? So that was the price responsiveness. Number two was demand responsiveness, like being responsive to the state of the grid without, without receiving any signals. And number three is demand response and ancillary services. So these are the three different revenue channels that could help Bitcoin miners make a lot of money, maybe bigger than their, their mining profits. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the famous news from Riot, you know, they mined Bitcoin at minus 38,000 per coin and stuff like that. So, but what was the second thing you mentioned? Uh, state of the grid without signals? What does that mean? Yeah, they, they call it 4CP in the state of Texas or in ERCOT. So then there is, there is a 15-minute segment in four months of the year, June, July, August, and September. And that 15-minute segment is a segment that the grid is consuming the most power during that month. If you consume power during those four 15-minute segments, you're going to get billed at 40K per megawatt per year. All right. Okay, so that's not price. That's, I don't know, just state of the network. Like, keep, keep off, keep your load off. Yeah, actually, this, this happened this past summer. During one of the four CP events, the price was pretty decent. Like the grid was was consuming a lot of power, but the the price is probably because of like the wind or sun. Like one of the generators was generating enough, so the prices were pretty decent and low. But four uh, CP was happening. So if you don't have separate plans for it, you're gonna lose a lot. So how do you how do you integrate with that maybe on on the technical side like how how do you get those signals I assume like let's take I don't know ERCOT for example are they a good example for this Yes Yes or no mm -hmm. Okay so so they public they publicize these signals right they put them on the internet um, Is that a simple API call where you just load the signals into your platform or does anything else come with it and how and how quick do you have to be right What's the latency from ERCOT publishes some data that's critical for miners mm -hmm. to them actually switching on or off. How long does that so, take? So energy markets in North America are pretty bad in data. Like they don't have really need like APIs in order, for, in order for you to read data, collect data from them. So that was a pretty big challenge for us when we started to build a product. But we eventually built a product that reads data from over 20,000 nodes from the all these nine electricity markets that I told you about and just puts that data in our database. We do the processing and kind of visualize them for our users. So that was, that was a challenge that we have to overcome in the process. But in the case of, let's say, ERCOT, um, there are usually like three or four different ways for each certain metric to be read from ERCOT website. They have a private API offered to market participants. That is probably like the, the best way, most accurate way. So we have compared that data with data publicly available on ERCOT website. Again, there are like multiple different endpoints on the public data, a public website they can read data from. And then they recently introduced a public API that has been in beta still, but now that happened, I guess, about a month ago, and that's that's being improved. But back to your question, how much delay do we see? Even ERCOT itself could be late in publishing those information. So we have seen up to two, three minutes of delay from ERCOT in publishing data. It's not, it does not happen all the time. It's usually like less than a minute of delay, but we have seen delays up to two minutes. As soon as we see those metrics um, 
we kind of uh, visualize them for our users. Not only that, but also they can use Rails in order to read those data and program their operation. As soon as they receive the signal, depending on how they have programmed their operation, we offer um, two different ways for them to respond to those signals. We have an instant function that kind of uh, sends the command to up to a thousand devices in less than five seconds. That's a super fast method. Uh, that's a pretty pretty high performance solution that we've built. Um, but that one is not necessarily compatible with every network. So you have to have really good routers, network switches, really good like server to be able to be that quick. And honestly, not every grid requires that level of responsiveness. For example, some of these frequency response programs in Nordic require that level of responsiveness. But usually in ERCOT, you have up to 10 minutes to respond. That so, seems long. That seems very long for a great event to happen and then 10 minutes to respond. That's, an, that's ages in electricity markets. It is. But they have another program. They call it FFR. Um, since they are kind of offering or working on an alternative for that FFR, but FFR requires response under 200 milliseconds. And that's too fast, right? So... That's so fast that not everybody can contribute in that, that program. Can miners do that? Like some... no, like... no. Yeah. Not, not really. I mean, maybe someday, but the propagation delay of the data and commands could be a lot more than that. So... Look, maybe that, this has been one theory of mine that we actually get miners for demand response that can ramp down or ramp up that quickly through some innovation, I don't know, but uh, miners can offer that. Yeah, I mean, you even have 30 seconds. Like I know from the German demand response market, there's three levels and the first level is respond within 30, 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, and miners cannot do that up and down, right? I think one way it's possible. Down is possible, up up is, is a lot um, more challenging to, to do. If you want, if you have to be honest, how many how many instances are there still where grid operators pick up the phone, call the miner, and tell them to shut off? Oh, all of them. <laughs> so here's the thing: uh, the most innovative ones they actually have the API and have the phone call, and that's that's actually a good thing because that there is a huge responsibility, right? You got to make sure that the message is actually communicated, and the person takes responsibility to curtail down. Otherwise, you can shut down the entire grid and it can take days or weeks for the grid to come back, to come back online and get back to normal, normal state, right? But that's a huge responsibility. So they have to be very careful. They have to be redundant and they have to text you and they have to call you. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, yeah. Do you have like a, a plans for 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 red button MIDI where you actually control the miners via Lincoin to avoid more delays? And um, I don't know if this is realistic or not, but let's say I don't know. Ercot calls you and says um, every miner that, that enrolls into your program, you can remote control and shut off to avoid delays. So there are different ways to make that happen. So, for example, we are working with. 
some energy generators and some co-ops who actually have access to the miner dashboard and they can shut it down whenever they wish. So that's one way that people are actually doing it right now. But we are also integrated with um, seven different uh, qualified scheduling entities who are representing the grid or representing the loads to the grid. And they can send the signals from ERCOD or from the ISO to the consumers. So directly I, into your platform. Yes. Yes, directly into our platform. And they can set those up on rails and the rail is going to do the job. So depending on how fast they want to respond, how much gap do they want to have, how they want to ramp down, how they want to ramp up, just with a few clicks, they can set that up. So that's... This is, these are the nuggets that nobody really talks about, right? The grid operators have direct control over the miners. That's uh, news to me. Or uh, let's just say they can t turn them on and off. Is that, a tr is that a factual statement? Well, technically, we can't tell that they, they have access to them, but they send a signal, place a request, and people follow that request. But that process is more or less automated. So this could happen automatically, and we can achieve that level of performance. Okay, on, on the topic of, of energy markets, maybe, mm -hmm. what else do you want to get into? Because I want to talk about the halving with you as well before we close up. So um, energy markets is a very deep rabbit hole. That's what people say. It's, it, could, it could be a lot more complicated than Bitcoin because there are so many more moving parts, so many more degrees of freedom. So in the energy markets, the way that we see that, so there's that variable pricing, that's awesome. There's that compliance requirements with like max demand, that's awesome. But there are some, um, some elements in the markets that are a lot more sophisticated. Uh, one of the areas that we think is very interesting and uh, could be very beneficial to Bitcoin miners and flexible loads is in uh, demand response and ancillary services. So for example, in ERCOT, there are multiple different programs. The most common one that people talk about is called ERS, which is the most basic program. They send you a command. You can participate in a 10-minute program or a 30-minute program to curtail down. Uh, but there are also so many other programs. For example, there is non-spin, there is uh, controllable load resources, there is ECRS. Uh, and each of these programs has its own limitations and requirements. And the important part is that you have to actually trade in the day-ahead market in order to participate in those programs. And people have been avoiding those because there is not a good enough tool out there. To do that, I won't spoil the rest of the story, but probably you can guess that we see that as an opportunity. Interesting. All right, so that means you will look to onboard professional energy traders onto or onto the platform. Build energy trading bots that does that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, then then it'd be interesting to talk about you know. What are what are the requirements and to do that? Uh, um, okay, interesting. All right, um, let's move on to the halving for a bit, Midi. How do you see this playing out? That's going to be a scary. 
What do you think? Uh, first of all, what do you think? Where do you think hash price is going to be right so after? What are I'm we going to have to? I'm old enough in Bitcoin space to remember the last halving. And I was following everything, the hash price, Bitcoin price, everything. So what happened, I'm just going to tell you what happened the last halving based on what I saw. So the halving happened, the rewards were like kind of split to half. There were other chains, for example, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Cash SV. Um, uh, there are also like a bunch of other SHA-256 uh, coins that you could think of. But uh, eventually, in less than 24 hours, the hash price for all of them kind of went to the same number, although it was the Bitcoin that had the halving. And it took took it like maybe two to three months for the price to compensate for the halving. For sure. I mean, many people stopped mining because it was not profitable. That helped the hash recovery of hash price to, to recover faster, right? But uh, probably we will see that happen again, but in a different way. So in the last halving, we had... Like most of the miners in the last hiring were like most like private miners. They didn't have maybe enough capital and they couldn't take the risk. But this time, I believe people will keep mining at a loss. So we won't see a huge drop in the hash rate, but people will be losing money for a few months before everything goes back to normal, hopefully. Uh, by price, by the price of Bitcoin. Why? What would be some reasons that miners mine at a loss? So publicly traded miners, they will keep doing that because they want to keep their share prices high enough. They hate publishing reports saying that, hey, because of the halving, we had to shut down 50% of our fleet. They're not going to do that. So they're going to keep hashing. They're going to keep going. They're probably going to just justify their decision, which is justifiable. They, they might say, hey, we are mining this Bitcoin, but we know that the price is going to go up. And when the price goes up, we will record a capital gain and we can technically pay less taxes on that capital gain because that's, that's tax at a lower rate, things like that. So people will keep mining, but they're going to lose some money in that few months after the halving. So you think that, sorry, just on that, so you think they're rather, because I mean, the efficiencies are known, the fleets are known, people know what they operate. Um, so you think that rather mine at a loss and everybody knows they're mining at a loss, than say, hey, we're going to turn this off until, you know, we're profitable again. Okay. I would have guessed, I would have guessed something like, I don't know, <clears throat> they maybe have electricity contracts that um, require them to stay online. Um, but um, I didn't think about your your explanation yet. So depending, well, that was that was like a general statement about all miners. But if you want to talk about the miners who have a who have an energy strategy, specifically the miners who are mining in ERCOT, uh, they can actually adjust their strategy based on the new hash price, and that's what people are doing on Lincoin right now, especially with these like. Uh, I don't know, the, the, the pump that we had in transaction fees past few weeks. People have been using Rails to monitor real-time hash price, just measure their margins and scale up and down based on that. 
they're going to do the same after the halving. Probably the uh, uptime could could go down. And depending on their requirements in terms of uptime, as you said, we might see different stories happen. So, for example, depending on the on on what type of uh, demand response program they are participating in, they have to commit a certain uptime. Let's say some of these programs require you ninety five percent uptime, twenty four seven. But they can also change their strategy and bid in for different segments. Uh, of the day to participate in demand response programs so they can play around with their uptime during the day to protect their profit margins. But eventually, a Bitcoin miner who does not have the right energy strategy is going to lose big. So they have to have the right energy strategy if they are in a deregulated market. Yeah, they also have to be able to execute on this, right? So let, let's say I'm a miner in the US and, and my, I don't know, my regulated, my deregulated market is not represented or my, my location. Can I actually upload my terms to your platform and use it on Rails? Yeah, 100%. But again, like in the, in the regulated electricity markets, you're exposed to a fixed pricing. There might be curtailments required by the grid. And usually you have to commit for a certain consumption so the load is should be predict, predictable for the grid operator that's the requirement that we have been seeing um in the in the market especially the regulated ones that's why people mine in texas by the way because there is a lot of freedom yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay all right interesting many thank you very much um this has been extremely insightful i have a bunch more questions that I don't have time to ask. So um, I'm not going to ask you if you want to come back. You'll just have to come back. Uh, <laughs> I was going to count on you. Um, is there anything that I, I didn't ask uh, that you wish I had? I think we, we covered um, um, almost every topic that we were supposed to. But uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be on the pod today. And that was that was great uh, for us to to be able to communicate with more people through your channel, and tell them about our vision and mission um, for for our company. And this is something that people will see. Just a prediction that Bitcoin mining has evolved a lot in the past three three four years. Like during the past past like uh, since since twenty. Uh, since the last halving, I mean, like since 2020. What we are going to see is probably what we learned and what we built in Bitcoin mining space is going to help people in so many areas and industries. So Bitcoin mining is going to be a launch pad for many technologies to become adopted in other areas. Starting with compute, so we will probably see and we already see a lot of Bitcoin miners started, they, they have started talking about different types of compute other than Bitcoin mining. And I think what we are doing here not only fulfills the purpose of supporting the network of Bitcoin and a free financial network, but also we are on a mission to develop technologies for humanity that they can actually use them in other industries and areas to make life more affordable, easier, and more 
technologically advanced. I've said this before, but I'll, I'll say it again. Like with the emergence of, of AI also coming into the mix, pushing Bitcoin ever more to the fringes of the energy system, we have to innovate, 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 right? Um, just like pools will have to innovate and offer additional services. Um, and at some point, you know, you'll have to be paid more than the next guy uh, for the power that you consume to stay afloat, right? And I think we see the beginnings of that, demand response, heat reuse, um, CO2 certificates to a certain extent also. Um, first mover, last consumer uh, type business models that come up that only mining can fulfill. Um, especially again, highlighting Africa here that this is a, a big thing um, on this continent, right? Because there's <clears throat> virtually no power infrastructure, but a ton of renewable energy, which is uh, not found often in the world uh, and actually quite perfect for, for Bitcoin mining to be the consumer of first resort and last resort at the same time, right? Um, okay, Mini, thank you very much. Um, before I let you go and tell people, before you can tell people where to, to find you and find Lincoln, tell me, please, if you think that Bitcoin consumes enough energy or not. Well, um, that's something to be decided by the market, first of all. So as long as it is profitable, people will build more mines and will buy more ASICs and will deploy more hash rate. So we can't put a stop limit on it. Hey, this is enough. No more mining. That's, that's not going to work. But my prediction is that with the development in other types of flexible load, we will see some sort of saturation sometime soon. So probably it's not going to grow as fast as it is these days because it can be secure enough already. I mean, if anybody wants to attack Bitcoin network, they have to have access to a lot of infrastructure, a lot of energy. So Bitcoin is, is pretty safe these days. And I think uh, the economics of the market will keep Bitcoin safe in the future as well. But we won't probably see that happen as fast as it is right now. All right. Tell people where to go, Midi. Uh, yeah, you can, you can find me on Twitter for sure. Uh, we also have a Telegram community of Bitcoin miners. Uh, that's where you can find me and chat and ask questions. So that's also uh, a great channel to connect. Perfect. We'll leave that in the show notes. Guys, you know the drill, comments, sub, um, ratings, um, questions. Please like ask as many questions. Tell me um, who you want to see on here now that we're on video as well. Um, tell people um, as well about the show if you liked it. And yeah, I hope you learned something new. Uh, see you next week and uh, yeah, until then, bye-bye.